All right, and we are rolling, and I think this is attempt number six to actually get this podcast episode up and running, so I guess guess it is fitting for episode six. With that said, hello and welcome everyone to Lapping the Field. I am your host, Eric Beck. We are uh, talking about racing, talking mostly about NASCAR. There were a bunch of different things that happened in motorsports this past weekend that we will at least touch on uh, a little bit later in the podcast. But as we typically do here, we're going to go ahead and start with NASCAR, and we are going to start with the NASCAR Cup Series, which raced this past Sunday at Richmond Raceway in Richmond, Virginia. There wasn't a whole lot of action, at least in terms of cautions or different sorts of things along those lines there were some different aspects to different race strategy that we will discuss let's go ahead and just jump right into talking about this race for the most part the uh, the first stage wasn't a whole lot of uh, intrigue i guess there was a competition caution at the lap 30 mark uh, about halfway through that stage which is normal for what we've been seeing throughout the nascar season so far and that is because of the lack of practices during this season thanks to continuing covid protocols but that said not a whole lot going on in stage one denny hamlin was your stage one winner But heading into stage two, we finally, for the first time in a couple of years actually, had what is called a caution for incident. There was an incident, obviously, with how that that is named. Uh, Austin Sindrick turned Ryan Newman, got him up close to the fence, but not... Not quite there, if I'm remembering correctly. But this was the first caution for incident, as it is called, since 2019. I believe they only, they actually only raced one race last year at Richmond. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I said, or thought there was only one at Martinsville last year, but there were two at Martinsville. I do believe there was only one at Richmond last year. So there was a relatively caution-free race last season. The only cautions were for the stage breaks and possibly for a competition caution in that race. This race, we had a competition caution stage break and then a quote-unquote real caution. So the only there wasn't a whole lot that happened in terms of vehicle impact. It was just those two cars getting into each other and Newman spinning. But it did play a little bit into the pit strategy that went on in Stage 2. Now, the way that NASCAR is setting up these stages in terms of the lap count is, as far as I am understanding, they're attempting to have Stage 2, at least, be longer than a fuel run so that you have to pit during the stage. They don't want to have two stages where you don't have to pit in terms of needing fuel. So they extended the they extended stage two at at uh, Richmond this past week. So it was only ten laps shorter than stage three, which is atypical, but was done for the reason previously cited. Well, because of this caution for incident that happened around sixty laps or so into stage two, happened at least a decent ways into stage two. That split up the stage, so that pit strategy changed a little bit. Uh, at least, well, for most teams, I guess, but it, depending on how you look at it, it either, either changed for everyone but one car or it changed for just one car because Brad Keselowski decided to run, or possibly Brad Keselowski's uh, crew chief decided to run a different pit strategy than the rest of the field. And what you saw was that 
based on how long the stage is, you could split the stage into just one pit stop. So you'd have two different fuel runs. But what has typically happened at Richmond is that they will instead pit twice because of the tire wear that happens. So Brad Keselowski's crew chief decided after the the uh, the caution flag that came out that they would attempt to just have one pit stop after that while the rest of the competitors took two pit stops. Or depending on whether I'm actually remembering that correctly or not, all that is to say that Brad Keselowski had one fewer pit stop than the rest of the field. And the question was going to be, was that going to work for Brad Keselowski? Now, as the green flag pit stops started getting underway, I believe Brad Keselowski was in fifth place. And as we went throughout the race and as he continued to stay on the track while everyone else had pitted, the first question in everyone's mind is, would he continue to finish or would he finish ahead of fifth place or would he finish behind fifth place and sort of use that as a determining factor of whether that was a decent strategy or not. But as the stage wore on, it became more of a question of, is Brad Keselowski going to stay on the lead lap or not, having pitted one fewer time than the rest of the field? And as it turned out, Brad Keselowski did in fact get lapped by Denny Hamlin, coming there with a couple laps left in the stage. So ultimately, that pit strategy did not pay off, but it's one of those situations where once you are committed to the pit strategy and to staying out, there's there's a certain point in time where you can't go back and you can't come in and, and pit because then you will be surrendering at least one lap. So they decided to stick to their guns, that uh, the two-team, and it did not end up working out for them. It did not end up paying off. And ultimately, it will probably be a factor coming back to Richmond where you will probably not be seeing teams attempting to do that any time in the future as long as the stages continue to be the lengths that they are. So that was stage two. And once again, Denny Hamlin won in stage two. And for the most part, Hamlin had a pretty dominant race car. Once again, Hamlin has been having very good showings during the race and has had very good finishes, but was in search of his uh, first win of the season, which it looked like was potentially coming until very, very near to the end of the race with something like 18 laps left. Kevin Harvick blew a tire and ended up in the wall and brought out a second caution for incident in this race. And what that ended up leading to was a final pit stop where everyone came in. Denny Hamlin was able to get off pit road first due to some very good work by his crew. His crew, as the Fox broadcast pointed out, has been leading the field in terms of their time on pit road. And Denny Hamlin has been leading the field in terms of his time on pit road. So combined together, they are doing very well in comparison to the rest of the Cup Series teams. So Hamlin gets out first. Hamlin gets his pick of where he is going to start and chooses the inside lane, sending Joey Logano to his decision of taking the outside lane. And it looked like during the previous restarts that the inside lane worked better than the outside lane, and it did. But what ended up happening on this final restart was that Alex Bowman, who started third, ended up getting a great run coming down uh, out of that third position, got past Logano, and then got past Hamlin on that second lap. There were They restarted with 12 laps to go, so on the second lap of that run, Bowman made his way to the front and was able to hang on just barely. It looked like he was getting sideways coming out of turn four, coming to what ended up being the victory for Alex Bowman in this race. 
and it looked like he maybe would have been passed by Denny Hamlin had the race gone even one lap further. So it worked out that Bowman was able to get the win. That worked out to his own pit strategy and the Kerr Chief's pit strategy there, where they decided to pump up the tires a little higher so that they started off with a little better grip and were hoping that the the, inf- the higher air pressure in the tires would be able to hang on for just long enough to give them enough grip for just long enough to stay in the race and put themselves in a position where they were eventually able to win. This, uh, the finish, there there are two things that came out of the finish to this race. One of them is some frustration from Danny Hamlin, once again having had the dominant car in the race and not being able to pick up the victory. In the in one of his post-race interviews, Hamlin said that he preferred to be in the situation he is currently in than in the situation of Alex Bowman, who, with that, uh, with the victory nearly almost almost completely surely punches his ticket to the playoffs. We will discuss that a little bit more here uh, further down the line in this episode. But Hamlin is currently still leading the uh, the NASCAR garage in terms of regular season points standings. So as we have discussed in a previous episode, the team that wins the point standings title for the regular season is guaranteed their bid into the playoffs. So as it stands right now, Denny Hamlin does have a secure spot in the playoffs. Were over the next 17 races, he able to stay in the lead on that front. But he still has shown, I think, some frustration in terms of not having that win. The other question that comes out of this victory is, was this a steal for Alex Bowman? Did Alex Bowman steal this race? And there have been discussions with uh, different people leaning on either side of that debate that, yes, he did steal the race, or no, he did not steal the race, with the latter opinion mostly being that some sort of combination of you make your own luck and Bowman was hanging around the front for a large portion of the race. Bowman also was able to overcome a uh, pit road penalty earlier in the race, uh, much earlier in the race. So in terms of my opinion, I think... Just in the way that, though, in the way that the term either stealing a game or stealing a win or something like that is typically used, sort of in general vocabulary, I guess. I think you could consider this Bowman stealing this win because it was a situation where he was not in the lead coming to that final restart. He pulled off some great, great pit strategy that is in order to make his way to the front and in order to be able to hang on for just long enough to be able to get that win over what was the dominant car during the race. So I think you could go ahead and chalk that up to, or call that a, uh, a steal of this race, especially in addition considering the, the situation that Alex Bowman has been in f- over the, the previous eight races, which we will also discuss a little later on here. But before we do that, we're going to go ahead and turn towards the top 10. We missed discussing this last week with the the results from the race last week in Martinsville. But we have the top 10 available for you. If you're watching on YouTube, we'll go ahead and pull this up on the screen for you. For those of you listening to this episode, we'll go ahead and uh, read off the top 10 finishers from Richmond this past weekend. First place, Alex Bowman. Second place, Denny Hamlin. Third place, Joey Logano. Fourth place, Christopher Bell. Fifth place, Martin Truex Jr. Sixth place, Eric Almarola. Seventh, William Byron. Eighth, 
Kyle Busch. Ninth, Matt DiBenedetto. And 10th place was Austin Dillon. So we've got a couple of names in there who maybe have occasionally run towards the front but haven't necessarily had great finishes this past season. For one of those people there we're looking at, I guess we can go bottom to top, you can look at Austin Dillon and Matt DiBenedetto as two drivers who maybe have not had as good of races as they would have liked, leaning more towards Matt DiBenedetto, or more uh, results, I should say. And then Kyle Busch has had sort of an up-and-down season in terms of Kyle Busch's typical performance. And then in there with that sixth-place finish, Eric Almarola, this is very easily the best finish of his season so far. And as we have discussed in previous episodes, Eric Almarola has had a very difficult season. Whether it has been uh, of his own making or not, there have been a lot of incidents on track where Almarola has ended up not being able to finish a race or has ended up finishing 30 or 30th or worse a number of times. So it is good for Almarola and for that team to be able to have a very good finish and be able to sort of advance in that aspect. There were some thoughts thinking about this. We'll go ahead and pull that top 10 list off there. We're going to talk a little bit about the nature of racing at Richmond. I've seen a couple of conversations in the last couple of days where people have been discussing the change in the racing style, I guess, at Richmond or in the way that uh, the race sort of functions as the as as an actual race or the racing itself in the typically two races that happened at Richmond Raceway. There were some comparisons, I guess, to some of the intermediate length tracks some of those mile and a half tracks that we've talked about in the past and that richmond isn't running as much like a short track anymore it is a three-quarter mile trioval it's running less like a short track and running more like one of those intermediate tracks where you don't see as much action necessarily maybe the racing doesn't seem to be as high of a quality or things along those lines My personal opinion, I think I said last week, and it is true, that I would love to go to a race at Richmond at some point. Having watched this race during the day, I think I would prefer to go to the night race, but I do want to go make my way down to Richmond. But a couple of things that I'm curious about in terms of the shift in racing. So the point was made that the change started to take place maybe like 8 to 10 years ago, which doesn't necessarily tie into this point that I'm about to make, but I am curious about the change to shift the last race of the regular season away from Richmond and two other tracks and to move Richmond into the playoffs and to sort of take away some of the luster or some of the challenge that comes with that final race of the regular season with drivers trying to race their way into the playoffs. I think that certainly for a long time, Richmond was that race, and that certainly added to the sort of racing that you saw in that final race of the regular season, so the typically second race at Richmond during any given season. So I think that may have taken some away from the the excitement that happens at Richmond, some of the, the way that drivers may be racing at Richmond, The other thing, I think, in terms of lack of raciness, if you will, which is not the proper term, but I guess we've already used it, but the lack of sort of racing excitement that you've seen at Richmond possibly in the past few years, and comparing that to other tracks we've seen this season, because I think there has been 
uh, we'll say mention made or notice given to a number of different races this past season as exciting, which I did not necessarily see with the same level of excitement. Thinking about these, it's tip- it typically has been those intermediate tracks. You think about Atlanta, where you saw uh, you saw strategy play out in terms of being able to save tires and Ryan Blaney coming from behind Kyle Larson to take over the lead and the win in that race. You think about a race like Las Vegas earlier this season, which Kyle Larson dominated and won. Even sort of that race in Phoenix, I wasn't as jazzed about that race as other races this past season. Even going all the way back as far as you can think about the Homestead-Miami race, which was largely won, and Tyler Reddick was starting to maybe push his way towards the front, but probably would have needed at least 10 more laps to catch the leader there. And even the Daytona 500, part of the Daytona 500, I know, was a large percentage of the field crashing out early in the in the in that race. But it really felt relatively boring right up until that very last lap and the last incident on that last lap at the Daytona 500. So I wonder if this isn't necessarily solely a Richmond losing some racing excitement issue as there is uh, a sort of there has been maybe a disparity in terms of racing in general and or rather in terms of the top level teams being able to have somebody or just a couple of drivers who are able to outperform a bunch of other people and maybe there has been sort of a level playing field and there has been a much more of a learning from the strategy strategies of others and being able to bring those into different race teams and two different tracks so i am curious about that i guess that is a thing that we can continue to monitor as different seasons go along whether we will continue to discuss that here on this podcast that has yet to be seen but ultimately i thought it was uh i enjoyed the race well enough i guess and that last 10 12 lap dash to the finish there at the end certainly helped that it's also worth noting one more thing that during the race the racing between Denny Hamlin and Joey Logano as they were coming towards what they thought was going to be the end of the race with with Hamlin trying to figure out his way to get past Logano while they were racing during a green flag run. I enjoyed that as well. It is interesting to think about how difficult it seems to be now in, to be able to pass the person who is in front of you. Because we saw numerous times during that run of Hamlin trying to get past Logano where Hamlin would get up to Logano's bumper and would even sort of give him the bumper a little bit from time to time, but then fall a couple car lengths back and have to work his way back up to Logano's bumper again. And some of that may be Logano's driving style of typically being seen as more of a, a blocking driver, someone who is maybe driving with his mirror a little more than others. But I think more importantly, or maybe more accurately, it is sort of the way that these cars are set up and that that, that is a thing that we see from uh, numerous drivers in numerous races at numerous different locations. So having talked about all those things, we'll go ahead and bring up the driver, uh, the standings, the NASCAR Cup standings. Last week I touched on something that I had been noticing and then we didn't actually end up discussing, and that was these teams within teams that maybe are that maybe are struggling a little more than other teams. So it is a little difficult when we have the word team refer to two different things, but there is a race team which is basically different cars that are owned by the same owner. 
And then there is the race team of each individual car itself, and we also refer to that as teams. So we've talked before about top-tier teams, and we've talked about some of the teams within those teams. I've been noticing, at least over the past couple weeks, that some of these top-tier teams have had one team that has been lagging behind the other teams, and we mentioned them last week. At Joe Gibbs, we've seen Kyle Busch maybe not doing as well as the other three drivers there. At Penske, we've seen Brad Keselowski not doing as well as the other two drivers there. At uh, at Hendrick Motorsports, we saw Alex Bowman before this past weekend not doing as well as the other drivers at Hendrick, at least in terms of a sort of standings level where these drivers are in the standings. Now, even with Alex Bowman's win... I would still keep him in that same category. There were questions this week about, is it a concern that Chase Elliott has not won while Alex Bowman has? Or is there a concern that Chase Elliott's team is lagging behind Alex Bowman's team? We talked about that a little bit earlier this season, but I think it's more of a case now where Chase Elliott's team seems to be having a little better, a little more consistent, higher finishes than Alex Bowman's team. So Hendrick, I think, is actually in a pretty good place. Uh, the Joe Gibbs team is also interesting to me. We saw this past weekend that Christopher Bell had a very good finish, finishing in fourth. And then we saw Hamlin in second, Truex Jr. in fifth, and then Kyle Busch, even though he maybe was the last of those four drivers, still finished with an eighth-place finish. So you had all four Gibbs cars up in the top ten, three of them in the top five. But with that said, looking at where Kyle Busch is in the standings right now, And looking at some of his performance from this season and from last season, it really looks like Kyle Busch is maybe slumping a little bit or is maybe having some difficulty finding his way. Well, not maybe. He is having some difficulty finding his way into victory lane. So it is a curious thing to see. It's not Kyle Busch is not a guy who you would have expected to have a drought of this nature, especially considering all of the different wins he has throughout the three premier series in NASCAR. But it is a curious thing to see him in sort of the fourth place position at that Gibbs team, at least in terms of standings. And there are some questions, I think, now moving forward. Is Kyle Busch going to be someone who is able to find his way to victory lane before they make it to the playoffs, which is something that did not happen last season? And then the other the other team there that we talked about with Penske and with Brad Keselowski Brad Keselowski, I wonder with this past race and with his crew chief making that pit strategy decision during stage two, if they're starting to feel a little bit of that pressure as well with potentially lagging behind the other two teams at Penske a little bit. Because as we look at these standings, I'll go ahead and read off where we are with the top 16 standings and then we'll continue that conversation. So Martin Truex Jr. with his win last week has still been able to maintain his first place position after the finish this week. So Truex Jr. is currently first. And again, before I get any further, this is the way that we have these these standings ordered, which is with the, the drivers who have won up at the top and then everyone else below them. I know that other places to use uh, uh, create their standings a little differently and would have Denny Hamlin up at the top. But with the standings that we're using, Martin Truex Jr. is number one, Joey Logano second, William Byron third, Ryan Blaney fourth, Kyle Larson fifth, Christopher Bell sixth, Alex Bowman now with his win is seventh, and then Michael McDowell, the final uh, the final race winner so far this season in eighth. Uh, 
Following those eight, we have Denny Hamlin, Chase Elliott, Kevin Harvick, Brad Keselowski, Kyle Busch, Austin Dillon, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., and Kurt Busch. So looking at those three drivers we have been talking about here within the last couple minutes, Brad Keselowski down there in 12th and Kyle Busch down there in 13th. And if it were not for his race win, Alex Bowman actually would be in 13th right now. So there is a little bit of that wondering what sort of consistency might be uh, a factor into where these drivers are finishing or what other issues there may be. So like we just mentioned with that, the pit strategy with Brad Keselowski, is he feeling pressure to try and find his way or find something different that is working for that team to try and match up with the other drivers over at Penske? And then finally, as we have mentioned before, in my consideration, there are four top-tier teams in the NASCAR Cup Series right now, the fourth of which being Stuart Haas Racing. We have talked about their struggles so far this season with Kevin Harvick largely sort of carrying that team. Harvick was in line for a top 10 finish this race until he had that tire go down and ended up in the wall. So he he dropped, I believe he dropped a spot since last week. But the other interesting piece about that is with, with Eric Almarola's finish, with his sixth place finish, Almarola has been having such struggles this season, such sort of large struggles this season, that that sixth place finish only moved him up one spot this week. He was in 28th last week, now in 27th. So that is a major concern, I think, and will continue to be a concern for Eric Almarola. It will be very difficult, I think, for Eric Almarola to race his way into the playoffs at this point, even though we're only nine races into the season unless he finds a way to win a race. So that will be a thing that we need to continue to monitor. And then another discussion we've been having about these standings and about these race winners this past or throughout this season are questions about whether this will be the first time we see 16 winners or more in this playoff, uh, the playoff field since the playoffs have been implemented, at least has, since they have been implemented in this fashion. Now, this is the first time, finally, we've talked about will there be someone who finishes outside of the top 16 just based on points who has won a race and will make their way in. And we mentioned that Michael McDowell maybe would have been considered that driver, but he was making his way through the season still in the top 16 in points. That changed after this weekend. Without his race win, Michael McDowell would be in 16th spot or in 17th spot rather, and Chris Busher would currently be in the playoffs in 16th spot. So those race wins are going to come in very handy at the end of the regular season, especially if we have fewer than 16 race winners. The other piece of this, where I think I mentioned in a previous episode, I wasn't entirely sure whether that we would be able to have. 16 different drivers just in terms of as you look at the different drivers who are who have not yet won are there enough possible contenders to win a race my opinion on that has changed to the point where i do think there is a possibility of six of at least eight more drivers who have not yet won possibly winning the first chief among those is obviously i feel like denny hamlin denny hamlin i still think is averaging a top five finish this past week, he once again had a top five, so that is now eight top fives and nine races, and his worst finish still is just 11th. 
So you look at Denny Hamlin as someone who you would expect to be able to win. Chase Elliott, again, I think he is doing better than Alex Bowman at Hendrick Motorsports right now, at least in terms of consistency with his finishes. So I don't know that there is much of a concern with them as maybe I thought there potentially could be. But again, we will continue to monitor that. But I think Chase Elliott is definitely a person who you would expect to be able to win before the end of the regular season. Kevin Harvick, as we keep going down this standings list, is still, I think, a question mark. That depends on what happens at Stuart Haas Racing and if they're able to get him a car that he is able to win in. Brad Keselowski, we just talked about his struggles, but he has been someone who has been able to win throughout his career. Kyle Busch, same deal. And then we get down outside of these top-tier race teams, and you look at guys like Austin Dillon, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., Kurt Busch. Two of those drivers are definitely able, I think, to win in Austin Dillon and Kurt Busch. Kurt Busch, a former series champion, even though that is a while ago now, is still someone who I think has the ability to win. Stenhouse Jr. does have wins in his career in NASCAR. And his race team, JTG Doherty, has been doing much better, I think, in terms of being able to field competitive race cars this season. Now, JTG Doherty does only have one race win as a race team, and that was at Watkins Glen a number of years ago. And that was with AJ Allmendinger, who was sort of more of a road course specialist than other drivers. So... It was sort of a perfect storm, I think, at the time with Almondinger being able to win in that car for that team. But with where it stands now, Stenhouse Jr. is still having a very good, very solid, very consistent season. Maybe not to the same level as fielding consistently top 10 cars, but certainly fielding consistently top 15, top 20 cars. So there will be a few of these races where maybe JTG Doherty is able to bring a better car to the racetrack. Maybe there will be some races like we will be talking about with Talladega where it is a little more of an any man's game or any driver's game as you go throughout the race as to who might win. As we saw earlier this season, Michael McDowell was able to get a victory at Daytona in the Daytona 500. And then looking behind those drivers, looking down at the drivers who are not currently in a playoff spot, we'll go all the way down to Eric Almarola to start off with this. Almarola is a driver who has also won in the NASCAR Cup Series and who has performed fairly well at Super Speedways, which again we will discuss with Talladega coming up here. Moving up from him, Eric Jones has won in the Cup Series. Cole Custer won a race, won one race raced his way into the playoffs with a win, more of a tongue twister than that needed to be. We have questions moving up about Ross Chastain, Daniel Suarez, Tyler Reddick, Ryan Priest, and Bubba Wallace, guys who have not yet won. And then you can jump up above them to Matt DiBenedetto and Chris Buescher, also guys who have not won. And then the last, uh, the last driver to mention there being Ryan Newman, who I'm not sure when his last race win was. He very nearly won the Daytona 500 last year. But a lot of these, it's going to depend on, I think, more of a perfect storm of driver and car in terms of when you are able to strike, when you're able to maximize on what you are able to do with your car and where, which tracks you might be able to do that at. And once again, to continue teasing, talking about Talladega, we will be talking about Talladega in our second segment here after, uh, after a break coming up fairly shortly. But we will be talking about a little more of a even playing field, potentially, if you will, coming up here at Talladega. So that has been a look at the standings. Let's actually, as we uh, 
as we just teased, let's go ahead and move to a break here. So when we come back, we'll be talking about a couple of other things from different motorsports outside of NASCAR that happened this past weekend, some different announcements that have come up, and then we'll go ahead and take a look forward at to, at the Talladega race weekend that's coming up this weekend, and we will do, we will be discussing all of that here on Lapping the Field. Hey everyone, this is the point in most podcasts where you would maybe expect to hear an ad read, a Patreon plug, or something of that nature. While that may be something that ends up being integrated into this podcast in the future, I'm more concerned at the moment with getting this podcast up and running. So, no ads, no Patreon, but if you do want to find out more about this podcast or any other project I'm involved in, head over to ericbeckmedia.com. That's ericbeckmedia, all one word, dot com. Now back to the show. All right, and we are back here on Lapping the Field, and let's go ahead and jump down to some of these other motorsports, some other news and notes that came out of this past weekend or this past week. One of these, uh, one of these new, one of these pieces of news, one of these notes, if you will, is that Formula One announced a ten-year deal to run a street circuit in the city of Miami. Now, apparently, this is going to be happening around the Dolphins Stadium, the NFL football stadium down in Miami, and not necessarily in one of the more picturesque areas of Miami, or at least that's what I'm told. I can't say that I have ever been outside of the airport in Miami. So it will be interesting to see, I guess, what what that entails or what the, what sort of racing that will entail and will continue formula one's push to try and gain an audience here in the united states and it will now result in two formula one races being run in the united states with one of those being for sure in miami for the next 10 years there are questions about where else formula one may end up racing there are questions about whether they will continue to use circuit of the americas it sounds like Roger Penske is interested in having them, Formula One, that is, come back to Indianapolis and to race on the road course at Indy. There are questions about whether they might be interested in driving a, or running a race in Las Vegas or whether they may potentially use some other either existing road course or a street course like they will be using in Miami. But it is definitely, as has been mentioned in other places around the media this past week, a push for Formula One to make their way into the United States market. There were questions, I guess, about whether Formula One would be able to perform, whether Formula One would be able to find an audience in the United States without an American driver. And it seems like there are a lot of people pointing towards the Netflix series covering Formula One as to a reason why Formula One, the Formula One audience is growing in the United States. Now, I personally have had it on my watch list for a little while, but I have not yet made my way to that that uh, that series on Netflix. But it is interesting. It is, is uh, encouraging, I think, to continue to see different motorsports being promoted in the United States and finding new audiences in the United States. I think that having audiences broadly for motorsports in this country is beneficial for each of the different motorsports. And part of that, in terms of 
overlapping of different different motorsports having an overlapping audience. There was a suggestion made by Bubba Wallace on Twitter and probably a bunch of other people, but I saw Bubba Wallace's uh, tweet first. There was a suggestion that NASCAR run their Miami race at Homestead, Miami, the same weekend as Formula One runs their race in this new street course. And it seems like an interesting possibility. We saw last year the first time ever when IndyCar and NASCAR shared a, the same track on the same weekend, and you actually had an IndyCar race and a NASCAR Xfinity Series race on the same day on the road course at Indy. So that would be an interesting thing in terms of race weekend overlap. The other thing I want to touch on here is the potential for shifting tracks, and not just in Formula One, with them potentially moving around where that second American race might end up being. But my interest in as well in terms of having NASCAR potentially shifting where they race each season. There have been a lot of questions. NASCAR was sort of locked into the same maybe not the same schedule, but at least running the same number of races at the same tracks each season for a number of years. And that changed, I believe, going into last season. And then, of course, there was a huge upset of that anyways once the COVID pandemic hit and there were changes that needed to be made last season. And then a number of changes even this season that some uh, along the lines of the Cup Series not being able to run at the California Speedway or Auto Club Speedway or whatever you want to call the Speedway down in Fontana this season. So I've always had a curiosity of being able to run at different tracks. I have mentioned before my interest in having more road courses on the schedule, which I'm very happy for this season coming up, and having a number of new tracks where the NASCAR Cup Series either hasn't run or hasn't run for a long time being added to the series this year. But I've been curious and been thinking about so far the number of different tracks that there are in the United States that could potentially host a NASCAR Cup Series race. There are a lot, there's a lot of push right now around the Nashville Fairgrounds track. That is another short track that a lot of people inside of NASCAR would love to be able to have a Cup Series race at and sounds like may potentially be happening. There was uh, some sort of letter of intent that was signed with the mayor of Nashville, I believe, to potentially be able to reopen that fairgrounds track and be able to run a Cup Series race there. But part of the problem with not running at some of these tracks or running at other tracks is which tracks get left out and which tracks don't get run on anymore. So for uh, continuing examples, I believe the Cup Series is not running at Kentucky this year. The Cup Series is not running at Chicagoland this year. So there are a number of different places where racing will not be happening this season where it has happened in the past. But my curiosity is that if you are able to sort of have a, I'll call it a round robin, but I know that's not the right term, but have this sort of shifting schedule where maybe you're racing at some tracks one year and then racing at different tracks a different year and then trying to figure out what are tracks that or what are races that you feel a need to continue to have. So, for example, you're going to always have two races at Daytona. You're going to always have two races at Bristol, at Martinsville, possibly at Richmond, maybe not, depending on the previous issues that we've talked about earlier in this episode, two races at Talladega, and then having races around the country for the rest of the season. Now, if you're able to maybe 
move move tracks so that they only have one race instead of two or maybe they don't have a race one season and then have a race another season i think it would bring an interesting sort of variety to the cup series schedule or to the nascar series schedule in general now maybe this is a thing that would be easier to test with the xfinity series i know that the xfinity series along with not always running at the same tracks as the cup series they have also run at tracks in canada and mexico in the past at least road course tracks so i think it would be an interesting thing to consider or for nascar to consider to potentially run at different tracks get different sorts of racing different sorts of tracks involved in the circuit be able to bring your race series into different markets into different places where maybe there hasn't been as much racing or maybe you could sort of expand the nascar palette if you will so that's just an interesting thought, interesting theory I have about a possibility that I at least, for one, would be interested in seeing the Cup Series explore in terms of being able to get different sorts of racetracks onto the circuit. The next thing, we have uh, two pieces of IndyCar information we're going to touch on very quickly here, the first of which being Jimmy Johnson, uh, seven-time NASCAR Cup Series champion, made his IndyCar Series debut. He's a 45-year-old rookie in the IndyCar Series, made his debut at Barber Motorsports Park, I believe it is called, down in Alabama, and ended up finishing 19th, three laps off the pace, and... Ultimately, there are questions about is Jimmy Johnson someone who's going to be able to add his list to the add his name to the list that is of the different people who have won both in IndyCar and in the NASCAR Cup Series. And I think ultimately Jimmy Johnson probably is not going to be challenging for a win either this season or next season. I do believe he is under a two-year contract to run for Chip Ganassi Racing in the IndyCar Series. The more interesting thing I guess for this right now is just having a a former Cup Series regular and a former Cup Series champion now trying his hand at IndyCar and seeing what sort of results will Jimmy Johnson have. Obviously, he is very new to this sort of racing, and it seems to be very different compared to having a stock car underneath you. So we'll just be continuing to track Jimmy Johnson's uh, Jimmy Johnson's performance in the IndyCar Series this season. The other note earlier today that came out is that the Indy 500 is going to be hosting fans. It did not host fans last year when it ran in August due to the COVID pandemic, even though they had wanted to. This year, they're going to be hosting fans. The race is going to be held in May as normal as scheduled, and they will be hosting 135,000 fans. Let me say that again. 135,000 fans. That apparently is only 40% capacity of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which is insane to me. In the state of Minnesota, if you had 135,000 people, I believe that would be the third largest city in the state. There are probably some states where it would be challenging for a much higher position than that, if there is such a thing as much higher than third. So 135,000 people is a lot of people. And it is going to be interesting to see with the COVID pandemic still continuing. Apparently, it sounds like they will be taking temperatures of people as they are entering the track, the track area, going to their seats. And apparently, if 40% capacity is 135,000, maybe they're able to continue to space people out as they're sitting in the grandstands or wherever else they may be sitting. 
And the question here, and this is a broader, I guess, broader COVID concern question, is that we're still, I guess, in the middle of this thing, and not everyone is, is not everyone's getting vaccinated. There, people are deciding not to get the vaccination, but not everyone will be vaccinated by that point in time. The other piece of this that I am always fascinated by in terms of COVID protocols and things like that is that you can be asymptomatic with COVID and have COVID and be able to transmit COVID even if you are not showing symptoms yet. So it always seems like sort of a dangerous potential, at least in my opinion, in terms of continuing or potentially increasing the number of fans who may be attending sporting events. So it will be interesting to see what happens here with the Indy 500 now officially hosting fans going into the Indy 500 this season. So with all of those things that we have gone through, we'll go ahead and move on to the uh, the race coming up at Talladega. I know that I did not talk at all about the Xfinity race at Richmond. Uh, if there even was an Xfinity, the truck series race at Richmond, the truck series race at Richmond. <laughs> I don't even remember what it was. Oh my goodness. Uh, I believe John Hunter Nemechek won that race and was able to hold off Kyle Busch, who was the the car or the truck owner for both Kyle Busch and John Hunter Nemechek's trucks. So uh, that's what happened in the truck series that I'm aware of, but that is not typically my my area of my area of watching, I guess. So. Moving along from that, we move on to Talladega and talking about the Talladega race. We are going to have a first-time Cup Series driver entering the race at Talladega. There were plans on it being two two first-time Cup Series drivers, but now it will just be one. Harrison Burton, son of my former driver Jeff Burton, will be making his debut in the number 96 Toyota at Talladega this coming weekend in the Cup Series. And the driver who was going to make her debut in the Cup Series race is Jennifer Jo Cobb, who is a Truck Series regular and has also raced in the Xfinity Series. Apparently, going into... Not apparently, I did know this. Going into the Super Speedways, which are Daytona and Talladega, you do need a an approval from NASCAR to be able to run a Cup Series race at those tracks if you have not yet run a Cup Series race. Harrison, Bur- Harrison Burton, that is, was able to get that clearance. Jennifer Jo Cobb was not. She was going to be racing in the number 15 car for Rick Ware Racing. That is not going to be happening. Apparently, Jennifer Jo Cobb had gotten clearance last season to be able to race in the Cup Series, but did not get the same clearance this season. Apparently, Rick Ware Racing was not aware that they needed to resubmit her application or whatever form of paperwork sort of thing in order for her to be allowed to race at Talladega in the Cup Series. There were some interesting questions about why Jennifer Jokob may or may not be accepted by NASCAR in order to run in the Cup Series. Jennifer Jokob does have a large number of starts under her belt, both at Talladega and around the NASCAR truck and Xfinity Series circuits. But apparently, if I'm remembering correctly, only has something like 11 lead lap finishes in her career in both series so there were some questions i think about her her finishes i guess and whether nascar felt that that was a detriment to her potential or would potentially be a detriment to the field to have her in the car for that race it is an interesting question though i think that i have not seen answered yet as to why she was 
accepted to race last season in the Cup Series and then now would not be accepted to race. Granted, she did not race in the Cup Series last season, but it is an interesting question that I have not seen an answer to yet. But other than that, in the last couple of race weekends, we've been looking at trends, looking at who may or may not be potential uh, drivers to look out for based off of previous seasons. I am not going to do that with the super speedways because it is very much, as I mentioned before, sort of an every man or every driver for themselves. Any man or any driver could win the race sort of mentality when you go into these super speedways. For those of you, if you've for some reason stuck around this long in this podcast episode and have do not have familiarity with NASCAR as a racing um, or as a sport, don't have familiarity with the way NASCAR works, NASCAR, and when they go to these super speedways, sort of put a handicap on the car. It's called a restrictor plate, which restricts the amount of air that's able to get into different parts of the engine or specifically into one part of the engine, but limits the amount of power that the vehicles are able to produce. And that is done in an attempt to make the races a little safer than maybe they would be if these cars were running 10, 15, 20 miles an hour faster than they were. That was an issue at one point in the history of NASCAR, and so they decided to try and do something about it. The trade-off for that is that now, with all of these cars having their power capped, basically, they run in packs around these super speedway tracks. So you will see, for the most part, uh, of the 40 cars, you will probably see 30 cars at a time running nose to tail, side to side, three wide running around these racetracks, these being Talladega and Daytona. And so... With that in mind, that is, it is more of a breeding ground for large accidents that involve a large number of vehicles. And that is why you don't necessarily or aren't necessarily able to predict who might do better than others at these different tracks. Now, with that said, there are a couple drivers who have not won yet and who are not necessarily racing for top-tier teams who have shown super speedway success in the past. And three of those who come to mind immediately are Austin Dillon, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., and Eric Almarola. All three of these drivers have won on super speedways. Stenhouse Jr., I believe, only has like two, two wins in the Cup Series, and I think they may both be at Talladega. He for sure has at least one win at Talladega. And Austin Dillon has one at Daytona. And I don't remember for sure. I think Almarola has won at Daytona, possibly at Talladega. So those are three different drivers who have not yet won this season who we can potentially be looking at. And then I think you have some of these, uh, your sort of series regulars up at the top of the field who you may be looking at. Brad Keselowski, I guess, don't forget or don't count out Brad Keselowski. He also has some experience winning races at Talladega. So that is a look back at this past weekend, a brief look into what is going to be happening moving forward. This race will be, I believe, on Fox. I think also, in addition to the Cup Series race, the Xfinity Series race will also be on Fox on broadcast TV on Saturday. So there's going to be some excitement for NASCAR fans being able to actually watch two series races on broadcast TV this weekend, or at the very least, I am a person who is excited that they will be able to watch the race as it happens rather than having to wait for NASCAR to release the race replay on YouTube. So that is that is the episode, I guess. For those of you watching on YouTube, thank you for watching. For those of you listening on your podcast players, thank you for listening. My name is Eric Beck, and this has been Lapping the Field.